0: Following is a presentation of artisan church in Rochester, New York. Well, we've just uh, dived back into the Gospel of John as a church. We've been going through this book of the Bible piece by piece uh, for actually for some years now. Although it has been until we started again last week, uh, almost a year since we took our next steps through it. And so we're resuming uh, in John chapter twelve. And uh, it worked out really well that today's text sets up the idea of baptism pretty nicely. And so I have some fairly brief remarks because the Scripture does all the work for me. (laughs) Almost all the work. Um, There may be a problem with me saying that the Scripture doesn't do all the work. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) I guess it depends on your theology. Uh, Anyway... um, What I meant by that was that the the stories themselves, the text that I want to read to you and with you today, advance the narrative without really very much explanation. And it does it in a really beautiful way. So I'd like to read for you, and if you'd like to read along with me, you can find your, uh, you, you can take out your own Bibles or find one of our Bibles. It's John chapter 12. Verses 20 through 36, that's the text today, and I have another one that I'll read from the book of Romans in a few minutes. If you'd like to find it uh, in the red Bibles that look like this, it's on page 875, if you have your own Bible. That usually means you're good enough at Bible stuff to find it yourself. So let me read this story, and uh, then we'll talk. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time For judgment on this world, now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer, Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So we're we're going to be baptizing some people today. And the, the symbolism in the act of baptism is the symbolism of both death and life. Particularly when, um, when you uh, baptize somebody by what, uh, what, what was called full immersion. It's not the particular way that we're going to baptize people today, but if we were to do that, sometimes we do, we have a, uh, a fancy baptismal, which is actually just a horse trough. <laughs> uh, some of you were baptized in that horse trough. Um, if, if we were to do full immersion, you, you baptize the person, you place him or her under the water as if to symbolize being buried in, in a grave. And then pull them up out to symbolize resurrection and, and uh, rising to new life. When Jesus said... When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Which one of those acts do you think he's talking about? Well, it might at first seem obvious. He's saying lifted up. He must be talking about resurrection. But remember the manner in which Jesus died. He was crucified and lifted up onto a cross. So when he says that, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, he's evoking the manner of his death and saying that it's in his death that he draws us to himself. This isn't, by the way, the only time he uses this imagery in John's gospel. Way back when, it might have been like 1980 or something when we did John chapter 3, you may remember um, the story of Jesus encountering Uh, Nicodemus on the roof, this is when he says the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I memorized it in the King James when I was a little boy, so that's sort of mostly what comes out when I say it now. Right before that verse, he tells Nicodemus this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, what is he talking about there? He is uh, recalling a story from their shared religious history, the Jewish faith. There's a story when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, having been uh, redeemed and taken out of Egypt, where they were in slavery for hundreds of years. They're wandering through, waiting to get to the promised land, and a plague of serpents comes upon them. And the snakes are biting people and the people are dying. And the solution that God gives Moses is to craft a snake out of bronze and put it on a pole and hold the pole up. And anybody who looks up to the pole would, would be cured from their venomous um, infirmity. <laughs> it's, it's a interesting and sort of bizarre story. But when Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, Nicodemus knows exactly the story that he's talking about. And what he says is, the Son of Man, meaning himself, must also be lifted up, meaning put on a pole, put on a cross, so that whoever believes may have not just life, but eternal life in him. So I think that Jesus, in saying... When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, is talking first and foremost about his crucifixion. And yet, knowing the rest of the story as we do, we can't help but think of Jesus being raised from the dead. And a little bit later in the story, being raised into heaven... He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Remember the Apostles' Creed. We said it just a few minutes ago. He's lifted up to his death. He's lifted up to his life. He's lifted up to ascension and fellowship with God throughout eternity. And it's into all of these things that we are joined when we're baptized. The Apostle Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. The book of Romans uh, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome in in the early days of the Christian church. And as far as I can tell, it's one sentence. The whole book is just one sentence. It's just this constantly, never-ending, unfolding, uh, dense theological treatise. And so it's almost impossible to quote single verses or even little passages from Romans because every other word is therefore. And you know what the rule is about reading the Bible, don't you? When you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself the question. What's the question? What is the therefore therefore, right? If you see it start with therefore, you can't just keep reading. You have to go, oh, wait, all of what he's about to say depends on what he just said. That's what the word therefore means. So I have to go back. And what happens when you do that in the book of Romans is you go back a paragraph and that paragraph starts with therefore also. (laughs) And it just keeps going and going and going and pretty soon you've, you know, it's Thursday. (laughs) Nonetheless, I'm going to read 14 verses from this book today because it's a bullseye with all the things that that I just said. It starts out, what then are we to say? Which is, let's be honest, kind of a way of saying therefore. (laughs) Um, So I'll take a half a step back, and what he has just said is where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, meaning that God's grace is sufficient, and it's sufficient, and it's sufficient, and you sin and sin, and God's grace covers it and covers it. And that's kind of the nature of the spiritual world. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him. By baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We've been united with Him in a death like His. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be destroyed, and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also, anyone who's been baptized, he's implying here, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin. Now, members just means literally the parts of your body. Do not let the parts of your body, don't present them as instruments of wickedness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. So what does this mean? (laughs) I think it means that the life of faith is first and foremost a life of death. If you would confess Christ as Savior, as Lord, which is a first century way of saying the one who's in charge of the whole world, it was replacing the emperor. If you would follow Jesus in that way, The first step is death. This is not a particularly winsome message, is it? (laughs) It's a death to yourself. It's a death to your selfishness. It's a death to your self at the center. That word self-centeredness, just means that we are putting ourselves in the middle of everything, that the world revolves around us. That's what has to die if we want to follow Jesus. So the life of faith is first and foremost a life of death. But the life of faith is not morbid because remember, Jesus has conquered death. So when we die to ourselves... We are raised to a new life that is outwardly focused, that is centered not on us, not on our own needs, not our own desires, but rather is centered on Christ and his sacrificial love. And when that happens, the life of faith becomes a life of service, a life of seeking the welfare of the city in which we find ourselves, as it says on the door frame as you walk into this room. It's a life marked by love of God and love of neighbor. It's a life in which we do not have the option to remain comfortable and silent when others around us are mourning and in grief. It's a life in which we are not permitted to remain comfortable with whatever privilege we have, whatever blessings we've received, whatever goodness is in our lives when others lack those things. When we die to ourselves at the center and replace that self-centeredness with Christ-centeredness, our hearts break open so that we can embrace others. And this is the beauty of the way of Jesus Christ, that in His death, He was lifted up on the cross. In His resurrection, He was lifted up from the grave. He conquered death so that we might have life. But this is the unavoidable impossibility of the way of Jesus Christ. If we would walk in that way, in the way of resurrection and life and love, we must first walk in the way of His death. There is is no way around this obstacle. There is no shortcut. There is no painless option. Now, it goes without saying that following Jesus will not directly result in literal physical death for most of us. Still, we must take up our crosses. Something dawned on me a couple months ago when I said this in a sermon, that when Jesus says to his disciples, if anybody wants to follow me, he has to take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. That was... It's so obvious now when I, that I realized it, but that was before the crucifixion. People didn't know how Jesus was going to die yet. They knew what a cross was, though. So when he says that, it's like, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to take up your electric chair. Put that on a pretty calendar with a cat, right? Right? <laughs> You have to take up the instrument of your own execution to follow Jesus. What you put to death, though, is love of self. What you put to death is selfishness. And what you put to death is a life in which every striving of your body and soul and mind goes to get yours And what is raised to life out of that is a life in which every yearning of your heart and soul and body and mind and strength is dedicated to following Jesus and to sharing true, self-sacrificial, self-emptying love with everybody. It will cost us. But here again, the promise of Jesus. If a grain of wheat... Falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And may it be so for all of us. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.